The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And I have with me in the studio, Dr. Ryan McGraw. Dr. McGraw, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me again. Dr. McGraw serves as academic dean, and he occupies the Morton H. Smith Chair in Systematic Theology here at GPTS. He's a graduate of the seminary, having earned his MDiv and THM degrees here, and he's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's pastored churches in South Carolina and his home state of California, and he's been a professor here since 2013. He's the author of many books, but I've invited him into the studio today to open up for us a particular topic of theology that will be of interest, that I know is of interest to our listeners. You see, over the past couple of years in hosting the podcast, I've noticed a lot of listener questions for our Faith and Practice segment regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Piper and I agreed that it would be extremely useful and expedient even to invite Dr. McGraw to walk us through the basics of biblical pneumatology, or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And he has recently prepared an elective reading course for our students on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And his classroom lectures in all of his classes are suffused with that very doctrine and, dare I say it, with that person of the Holy Spirit, even in the classroom and in our conversations. So, Dr. McGraw, in this first episode, I want to ask you to give us an overview briefly of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, maybe in 20 to 30 minutes. Let's open that up. And then throughout, if you could point us in the direction of some useful resources on pneumatology, that would be very much appreciated. And in future episodes, we might tackle particular issues or problems in biblical and systematic theology relating to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So kicking us off, tell us a bit about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, in recent years, the Holy Spirit has been called the forgotten person of the Trinity. And for various reasons, I don't think that that's necessarily true anymore. And people have given a large amount of attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Often when we think about the Holy Spirit, we are drawn to issues such as the miraculous or extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, or how can we find direction in our lives and know the will of God for our lives, or even basic things of how can we have communion and fellowship with God. But sometimes what people mean is in a more subjective way, and sometimes in a way that's detached from the Father and the Son. When we think of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, one thing that I like to remind my students of in many of my classes is that God does what he does because he is who he is. And from eternity, the Father is the first person in the Trinity, the Son is the second person, and the Spirit is the third. And that doesn't mean in order of importance or authority or rank in some way, but what theologians have called order of subsistence. And what that means is all things are from or of the Father, including the Son in his eternal generation. 
and of and from the Father through the Son and the Father and the Son, you have the uh, procession of the Holy Spirit. And so because God is who he is, and God is Father, Son, and Spirit in that order in intertrinitarian uh, relations and fellowship, then when God uh, works, everything that God does is from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The Father originates every divine work. The Son effects it or brings it to pass. And the Spirit is the one who completes or perfects the work. So in Genesis 1.1, you see God uh, speaking and through his word, bringing the heavens and the earth into existence. And then the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep, completing the work. Undoubtedly, the apostle John connects this, especially to the father and the son in John 1, that the son is the eternal word through whom the father completes and does all things. The Spirit then is the one who perfects every divine work and, as it were, brings it to its fullness and its completion. And we see that not only in that process of creation, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming man, sent from the Father, but conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Spirit, completing, perfecting the work, and also in our own redemption. Uh, the Father chose us for salvation but Jesus lived and died and rose for us, and the Spirit uh, applies Christ to us and brings us in union with Christ. So basically, um, the Father planned our salvation, the Son purchased it, the Spirit applies it. And hopefully just that brief overview, we begin to realize not only are the works of the persons always integrated and connected to one another, but they're always ordered in a pattern that reflects the triune uh, and tri or triune nature of God. And so we need to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit as he relates to Father and Son from all eternity in order to understand how he works in us and how we have fellowship with him ourselves. And we would say the same if we were doing a podcast episode on the Father or on the Son. In order to understand the person and work of the Father, we need to do so in relation to the person and work of the Son and the Spirit and, and, and the same for the Son with the Father and the Spirit. I mean, there's a, this ineradicable interpenetration of the persons in each of their works, but yet we can still distinguish and so how do we draw those lines of delineation and 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 what what would be a useful way of even framing that conversation of saying this is the work of the spirit uh eminently so i think one way to begin in answering the question is in my experience i'm amazed increasingly how many doctrinal and practical errors result from not holding the order of the works of the persons in their proper place or from stressing one person of the Trinity in detachment from the others. And I think as we think about any of the persons of the Godhead, we need to recognize that while there's a distinct emphasis on origination, affecting and perfecting or completing, uh, this is uh, a description of the unified act of the one true and living God. And so the old adage goes, the external works of the Godhead are undivided. 
So when the father acts, he never does so apart from the son and the spirit. And likewise with the spirit, he never acts without the son and the father, etc. And we need to keep that in mind. And yet at the same time, the, there is a distinct emphasis on the works of the particular persons that I think reflects this eternal intra-Trinitarian order. So, for example, uh, when you think about the Trinitarian blessing or benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all is a good entry point because uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you could say, well, isn't the Father gracious as well? And isn't the Spirit gracious because he graciously unites us to Christ and without that we wouldn't know anything at all and wouldn't have any true knowledge of the Father? Well, yes, all three persons are gracious, but Jesus embodies the grace and truth of God in himself, in his incarnation, and Jesus, as the God-man, purchased grace for us. And so when we think about the grace of God, we should immediately say Jesus and run to Jesus Christ. And when Paul goes through the benediction, then he attaches love, not as most people would expect preeminently to Jesus, whose love passes knowledge, but to the Father who sent Jesus in the first place, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It wasn't the son sending the son, the father sending the son. And often we miss these Trinitarian emphases uh, that are on the surface of texts we know really well, like John 3.16. And same thing with the spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Why is fellowship or communion attached preeminently to the spirit when, for example, in 1 John 1, uh, John can say, that uh, we write these things that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And yet this blessing goes to the Spirit preeminently. Well, because ultimately eternal life is knowing the right God in the right way, which is summarized in knowing the Father representing the only true God and Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. But if we have no Spirit, we have no Son. And if we have no Son, we have no father. And so the spirit is the link, as it were, uh, that brings us into the bond of fellowship with God. And as a result, into fellowship with other, with other believers. So when we think about what I've just said in summary. What this boils down to is God does what he does because he is who he is. And as God is father, son, and spirit in that order, the father originates divine works, the son effects them, the spirit perfects them in a single, unified, uh, eternal, divine act in everything that God does. We see a distinct emphasis because there are distinct processions among the persons, as Aquinas would have put it. Dr. McGraw, what doctrines or even, you know, practices of Christian living does this really affect at the end of the day? Where does the rubber meet the road? Well, let me answer that particularly in relation to some common issues that surround the Holy Spirit. Um, when, we, when we think about the Holy Spirit, for instance, people think about spiritual gifts. And what are my gifts? Uh, should I be speaking in tongues? Should I expect direct revelation from God in dreams or visions? 
And again, as I said, many errors that we face today result from disconnecting the persons of the Trinity from the other persons of the Trinity. And sometimes what's behind this question is the idea that I have some sort of direct link or exclusive link with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. So when I'm talking about spiritual gifts or speaking in tongues or dreams and visions, this is only about the Holy Spirit because uh, the Spirit gives me the gifts and the Spirit is working in these ways. And the result is that the question revolves around now my personal devotion and almost a mystical experience that I have. Whereas in the scripture, the Spirit's work is always attached to the Son and through the Son to the Father. And so, for instance, with uh, things like visions and divine revelation, Jesus says that he declared to us what he received from the Father. But in John 16, he says that the Spirit declares to us what he received from Christ. Well, in Hebrews and especially Hebrews 1 and 2, we learn that Christ, who's the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person, is the Father's highest and final revelation. And in chapter 2, the gifts and signs and wonders given by the Holy Spirit are designed to testify to the authority of those who heard Jesus. So not only Jesus himself, who hears from his Father and declares to us as the Son in person, but those who heard him have these gifts of the Spirit in order to testify to the word of the Son so that people would know the Father. And by detaching the question of the gifts from the Trinity, we've, we've uh, diverted our attention to my personal devotion to God rather than how God actually reveals himself through prophecy and scripture uh, as the triune God. So that'd be one example. But this happens in other ways. Uh, don't we often hear people speak of the Father who has a particular work of election that doesn't encompass all people because all people won't be saved, and the Spirit only changes the hearts of some people and has a particular work of effectual calling. But then people will say, but Christ died for all men because the scripture says all. Well, what do we end up with there? Isn't it a Trinitarian problem? Because we have a particular father and a particular spirit and a universal son, but the son got outvoted. Or take another one that pushes more directly to the spirit. Uh, have, uh, have you ever struggled with assurance of salvation? I have. Uh, many people have. And what often happens in such cases? Well, in my case, and in one church I was in, what happened is we would see people turn away from Christ, and we were all good Calvinists, and we knew the perseverance of the saints, that if you're in Christ and you're chosen by God, you'll never totally and finally fall away. And yet, you're left with the reality. This person read his Bible more than I do. This person prayed all the time, discipled other people in the church, and now the only comfort I have is John says they went out from us and they were never of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. And what do you say? What about me? Maybe I'm not of us. Maybe I don't have the right measure of, of faith. I don't doubt Christ's faithfulness to believers. 
I doubt whether I have genuine faith in Christ. Basically, you doubt so, whether or not the Spirit has worked in you. And that's what begins to happen. Do I have the fruit of the Spirit? Do I have true repentance? Is the Spirit really working fruit in my life? And if I detect enough fruit and enough level of faith and enough repentance, now I can go back to being assured of my faith in Jesus. And here's the whole problem. Am I not looking for assurance and sanctification by the work of the Spirit without faith in Christ? Which is essentially so, you're looking for assurance of salvation in your own work at the end of the day. Yeah. When you we, divorce Christ from the Spirit. If you did divorce Christ from the Spirit, um, you'll always be looking for a quantity of obedience rather than a quality of faith in Christ. Dangerous waters to be swimming in, as we know, because we've dealt with these issues even in our courts of the church in our, in our various Reformed denominations over many years with the whole federal vision error and heresy and and um, that, at least in some instances, or if not all instances, uh, it was caught committing this very error of separating out the work of the Spirit from the work of the Son in salvation, or at least we could argue that to be the case. Uh, Dr. McGraw, you've mentioned a couple of resources for us. You mentioned Aquinas. Um, you know, I know that you know you have a reading list for this reading class that you've that you're delivering, or I guess overseeing, teaching even. Uh, for our students as an elective, what resources would you recommend? And in this, our very first discussion on pneumatology for the podcast, what resources would you recommend our listeners pick up or turn to, to as, they, as they think through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Let me just make a couple of key recommendations. In terms of modern authors, I uh, highly recommend Fred Sanders who's actually going to be a speaker, Lord willing, at our theology conference here in Greenville in March. March 9th to 11th, and all of the information is available at gpts.edu conference. Dr. Sanders has really done an excellent job on everything he's written on the Trinity, uh, and particularly enveloping the work of the Spirit and the person of the Spirit. In those discussions, uh, his book simply titled The Holy Trinity, uh, or the triune God, rather, is, uh, is, is excellent and presents the material in a way that reads naturally off the pages of the New Testament. And also, Sanders is an outstanding writer, and he's easy to follow. Uh, he's sometimes even entertaining, but appropriately. He's good to read and easy to read, and so I, I can't recommend him highly enough and as someone who's drunk deeply uh, in the wells of church history and scripture and combine the best of both in a very highly uh, readable way. I, always, I also recommend his uh, practical book or devotional book called The Deep Things of God, uh, which is also on the Trinity. As far as direct works on the Spirit, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Spirit is excellent. And if you want to see someone who's benefited greatly from a host of other authors, including some of the best classical authors, um, and, and digested it in his own way and expressed it in his own words and own thoughts. Uh, Ferguson is, is an excellent place to begin. And if anyone has read anything by Ferguson before, they probably don't need much pushing there. Pick up Ferguson, but it's one of the best modern works, I think, on the Holy Spirit. As far as classical works, let me mention a few things. 
uh, pride of place has to go to Owen, not just because my scholarship and research is in Owen, but there's a reason why I did my research on Owen. And one of those is that, uh, at least in Owen's day, what constitutes volume three and four of his works, uh, he acknowledged was um, probably the largest single work ever written on the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. Uh, I don't know if anything has surpassed it at that point, uh, at this point. But if uh, you look at the book on the Spirit, sometimes Owen gets into meandering digressions and uh, a lot of issues that are good but somewhat distracting and what we call rabbit trails. You don't have much of that here. Uh, if you read the beginning of the book on the Holy Spirit, he outlines the entire project into five parts quickly and clearly, gives you a thesis statement, and for the most part pushes through. And he deals with the Spirit first in relationship to the Trinity as a whole, and then the Spirit's work in the incarnate Christ and the Spirit's work in uniting Christ to believers, and as it were, duplicating his work in the incarnate Christ in them. And those things themselves, as far as dealing with the Spirit's relation to the other divine persons, the Spirit's relationship to Christ, and the Spirit's relationship to you, are the key takeaway points for Owen's work on the Spirit. In Volume 4, he branches out into related issues, uh, such as the, uh, the reason of faith or the grounds upon which we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that relates to the Spirit's work in instilling saving faith in us. And he's really dealing with the self-attesting and self-authenticating nature of the Bible. Uh, because the Spirit is its author, and the Spirit is also the one who convinces us that the Bible is the Word of God. And it's a profound work, and uh, thorough and well done. He also has uh, a book on the Spirit as the author of Spiritual Gifts, uh, which would be inherently interesting to many listeners. The Spirit's work as comforter, uh, and the Spirit's work in prayer. And so I think all these things you could see are inherently practical and interesting. And to my knowledge and uh, my personal opinion, uh, no one does them better than Owen. Uh, Owen's colleague, Thomas Goodwin, also wrote a massive work on the Spirit's work in regeneration, which is also quite good. Uh, if you take Goodwin's book on God the Father, God the Son, which ends up being a Trinitarian book, even though he just mentions Father and Son, and combined it with his work on the Holy Spirit, then the two of those books together give you quite a substantial comprehensive treatment of the entire Trinity. So Goodwin is, is very useful. If you're looking for older things, um, let's go back to the 4th century to the not old enough. <laughs> not not old enough. Well, things get I'm just a, kidding. Things get a little weird before that. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the famous work of uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers, uh, and and I should say the Cappadocians were the three that developed Trinitarian theology between Nicaea and 325 and Ephesus, which completed the Nicene Creed in 381. Uh, Basel, who is one of the 
Cappadocian fathers uh, wrote a series of letters on the Holy Spirit. And uh, if, if you Google it, you can find a whole bunch of versions of this. And uh, if you want to see something that's uh, profound, doxological, devotional in its own right, then going back to Basel as well as uh, Gregory Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzen are very useful. And what always strikes me about the Church Fathers and the Trinity is that you almost never have a dry, uh, arid definition and explanation of the doctrine that leaves people wondering, what am I going to do with this? But you have uh, a doxological tone where these people are full of joy and thanksgiving and delight in the triune God that I've often said, if we gain nothing else from them, I pray that their attitude and their spirit would be contagious. And we need this in our preaching, and we need this in our thinking. So read the Cappadocians. I could go into uh, the Middle Ages, and I could go into to lots of other things. You've got a couple of modern th- ish, uh, books to look at, um, a couple of, of Puritans, Goodwin and uh, Owen, and I could add more, but those stand at the top of my list. Uh, Church Fathers focusing on Basel, but also the other two Cappadocians. And the only other thing that I would mention here uh, in line with what I've said about Owen is uh, if you look at Dominic Legg's Trinitarian Christology of Thomas Aquinas, you'll begin to see how people like Owen and Goodwin drew from Aquinas' teaching on the work of the Spirit and the Incarnate Christ and pulled this into a distinctively Reformed gospel. So Legg is a Dominican. He's Roman Catholic. He's not writing from a Reformed perspective at all. Uh, But keep in mind, he is trying to present Aquinas in his context. And if you've read people like Owen and Ferguson and some of the other books that I mentioned, a lot of pieces will start connecting, and you begin to realize how some of our Reformed fathers took the best even of the Middle Ages, and and adapted them to present a Reformed gospel. Dr. McGraw, this is supremely helpful, and even just building up my own book list. Uh, some of these books I have but haven't yet read, and some of them I have and have skimmed through, and some of them I've never even heard of before. So I'm looking forward to digging into some of these resources myself as time allows, even though I'm not enrolled in your reading class, and you know that to be the case. But I, I, this goes without saying for our listeners or for you, Dr. McGraw, we live in a very confused time and confusing time when we start talking about the charismata and the spiritual gifts and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And what I hope is that these few brief podcast episodes we will do, and specifically as we dive into particular issues, will be useful to our listeners either to clarify their own thinking or to give them a resource as they as they engage in conversations with our brothers and sisters from other uh, sub-traditions within the great Christian uh, tradition. Thank you, Dr. McGraw. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.